This is episode 212 of the IDRA Class Notes Podcast. There are students who are very much disengaged in their learning at this point and are falling behind in their academics, and that's startling. And that is just a direct impact to some of these digital divide issues that have been lurking. You know, even prior to the pandemic, that's just been brought to the forefront and exacerbated since the start of the pandemic. So that was very disturbing to me. And that was something that also kept propelling my interest in, and my passion for the topic. Welcome to IDRA's podcast, Class Notes. I am Michelle Vega, Chief Technology Strategist here at IDRA, and I'm going to be having a conversation with IDRA fellows Thomas Marshall and Christina Quintanilla-Munoz. We will be discussing digital inclusion and the policy work done during the 2021 Texas Legislative Session. Let's begin with introductions. Christina, can you start and then we'll move on to Thomas. Hi, everyone. Uh, yes, my name is Christina Munoz. I am one of the education policy fellows that was part of the inaugural um, fellowship this year, um, this legislative session with IDRA. And a lot of my focus during my fellowship was research and policy work around student engagement, policies and practice, and digital inclusion. And my name is Thomas Marshall. I'm another IDRA education policy fellow. And my efforts were digital inclusion as well as family and community engagement. So let's lay down some foundational information. Tell me about your introduction to digital inclusion and how you began your policy work on this issue. Thomas, we'll start with you. Yeah, so that's a great question. I'll kind of build up the story. We were able to um, have different areas assigned to us as policy fellows thinking about how we can best serve students equitably through the Texas legislative session, but as well as just community engagement overall and how we're able to best serve students. And so I did a lot of research in the beginning months preparing to see what is digital inclusion, um, what are the efforts being done currently, um, how are some ways that we can best support students right now, what are the things that have been done in the past, and then we were able to bring Christina along as well and kind of talk about what are the different ways that we can kind of intersect this work. She worked on student engagement, I also worked on family community engagement, but we knew the digital divide, speaking to those gaps within broadband internet access, was going to be a huge priority the legislative session due to the COVID-19 crisis. We saw students move to virtual instruction. So we knew this was going to be something that the legislative body would take on very quickly. And so we kind of combined and did a lot of research and put in a lot of work and efforts to be able to see how we can kind of best serve the students and what would be the best um, outcomes and talking points to go forward with. Tons of digital equity advocates throughout the legislative session. And that's kind of how it all began. It was, it was a really great working relationship. Yeah, and I think during the first part of our fellowship, we spent a lot of time in learning sessions, kind of getting acquainted to some of the policy work that IDRA was already engaged with and some of the advocacy partners IDRA has already connected with. One of the sessions that struck me was our session on the digital divide and how this would be a conversation that we would encounter during the legislative session. And that particular session struck me on how pervasive the issue was and how little I knew about it, especially as being a student who has kind of gone through the, the whole process of doing the online virtual remote setting with my, my graduate studies anyway during COVID. And 
I realized I finally have some words and some terms I can apply to the experiences I've encountered as they pertain to the digital divide. And so I became really passionate about the topic. And as Thomas mentioned, our interests really overlapped and we decided to move forward together in our digital inclusion work, of of course, with our advocacy partners that were very closely involved in in our work. And so that kind of started my engagement with, with digital inclusion work anyway. As y'all are both new to the issue, I know that y'all leveraged people and resources to become the subject matter experts that you guys are today. And so I'm wondering, is there anybody that you'd like to uplift or are there any resources that you'd like to uplift to tell the listeners an avenue that they can pursue if they were wanted to get involved? Yeah, there are a ton of different advocacy partners that we work with. There's so many people to shout out. And like, I always like to say, charge it to my head and at my heart <laughs> if I miss anyone. Um, there are tons of great people. The Digital Inclusion Alliance of San Antonio was a great starting point where we met great people like Luna and Jester, who is now with the National Digital Inclusion Alliance, um, Renee Gonzalez of the Communities, as well as other folks that do kind of on-the-ground community work, um, like Thomas Ray Garcia with CSLAP down in the Rio Grande Valley, who works with college students' preparation and access, but talks about a lot of those digital divide issues all the time. And a lot of different school teachers through IDRA's um, education policy class that they did with Texas A&M University Commerce. And so we met a bevy of people, students, teachers um, held a student convening as well to hit on a lot of these issues. So there are a ton of different advocates and not even just advocates, but just everyday people who know that the digital divide affects them. They are advocates in that because they're also talking about solutions to the problem and ways to, to talk about. So those are some of the people that really helped us. Yeah, and building off that, when I'm thinking about some of the resources we connected with to just engage in better, more effective research in the topic, we spent a lot of time, as Thomas mentioned, on the DIASA or the Digital Inclusion Alliance of San Antonio site and the National Digital Inclusion Alliance site. Uh, of course, there are so many advocacy partners and networks that are part of that those alliances that I think served for me as a way to just get started researching. There are so many sources available, um, so it's hard to tease through what might be most helpful to your understanding, but definitely we started there. The Data Census Bureau site were very integral too in, in terms of asking some critical questions that we felt that data didn't represent um, our communities of color in particular. And so that definitely initiated some of the research questions that we pursued throughout our our research and policy work. Um, there's access to um, data about presence of internet, but there's not necessarily a data available on affordability or why someone is adopting the, the service. So those are just some examples of some of the questions that emerged in our research and through our sifting on, on the data census side. But again, as Thomas outlined, there were so many advocacy partners who made this work possible. And so I um, definitely want to echo the those that we uplifted. Is there like a startling issue or statistic that you uncovered during your research on digital inclusion? One for me specifically, not a surprise because just when we talk about America's history and structural racism around the country, we know what we know and we know that the true history and the inequities that communities of color have faced for generations and for years. But when we really think about access to the internet, a lot of us and 
folks even listening to this podcast. Just being able to listen to this podcast is already a privilege in itself and understanding that you have to have an internet connection to be able to get that, whether it's through data or whether it's through Wi-Fi transmitting. And the fact that there are sheer, sheer inequities between Black and Latinx folks was really startling. Talking about 62% of Black students having less access, 59% of Latinx students having less access comparatively to 78%, which was white students. I just knew I was not surprised by those statistics, but it was just very startling to notice that there are students in Texas, just based on their zip code, are not going to have internet access and are going to have a much harder time in school because of those things like the homework gap and not being able to complete assignments on time because they don't have internet. I think in relation to that, that's where I was most startled was just how much of an impact the digital divide had directly on students during the transition to remote learning at the start of COVID and kind of beyond for the next year or so was how many students were disengaged simply because they didn't have the proper connection at home or they didn't have, you know, a device that could handle or internet service that could handle the amount of activity that they needed to to be able to engage in during their classroom learning time. So we're thinking about how many programs they must have had open Zoom, for example. Those are all programs that require a large capacity of data. So we're thinking, you know, you may have connection, but how well is that connection? And moreover, there are many households with more than one student. So when you have multiple students in a given household, how engaged really are these students if they're having trouble accessing the information that they need in order to stay engaged in their learning? And so through IDRA's kind of look at some of that preliminary student engagement data at the start of the pandemic in spring 2020, one in 10 students were disengaged. And that's 10% of, of students. That's a lot of students who kind of dropped away from their learning. And like Thomas mentioned, that is representative of the homework gap. There are students who are, are very much disengaged from their learning at this point and are falling behind in their academics. And that's startling. And that is just a direct impact to some of these digital divide issues that have have been that have been lurking, you know, even prior to the pandemic, that's just been brought to the forefront and exacerbated since the start of the pandemic. So that was very disturbing to me. And that was something that also kept propelling my interest in, and my passion for the topic. Thank you all for bringing up the homework gap and digital redlining. I think those are both the topics that got me interested in this particular issue. You know, when you look at digital redlining, and you overlay maps of a city with the old redlining and then overlay that with internet connections, you really see that digital redlining is happening and that people of color and economically depressed neighborhoods are the most affected. And then, you know, in regards to the homework gap, absolutely. I mean, nowadays, especially with the pandemic, if you do not have access to the internet and a device, then you are not able to access the learning that you need to get through the school year. And this isn't going to go away. This is something that going forward that we're going to live in hybrid situations. Online learning is going to continue, even though face-to-face school will be happening in this coming school year, but there's still going to be hybrid situations. And so it is, it's very important that students have access to quality devices and quality internet. So talking about that, Thomas, during the legislative session, some representatives were worried that students may encounter harmful material while online. 
Do you feel that it is the responsibility of the state or internet service providers to censor content? And moreover, do you feel that the risk outweigh the benefits? I think that's such a great question because we have to look at it from a really interesting lens. So at one point we see the school districts and we understand like, of course, like there's some harmful content out on the internet. The internet is huge, very vast field of content and we're still exploring that. And the internet's not that old. It's only been since like the nineties. So we are still in this new age of building out the internet. And so we are still in a place of trying to figure out what is what. And so I understand where school districts are coming from and wanting to make sure they protect their students from seeing that harmful content. On the flip side of that, we have to be sure that what are we deeming as censorship or what are we deeming as harmful content? Because when we're thinking about students and what they're on the internet seeing, we also want to empower students. We want to build that collective power with students. And so a site like a Twitter, yes, could have some powerful content on it, but does have some benefits to be able to help students kind of engage socially on a virtual platform, as well as meet other students, build collective advocacy power with other students. You know, that's another route that could be a very positive effect. And as well as we have to think about families. If schools want to claim to be intergenerational and really want to make sure they're really engaging with their families, they have to make sure when they're sending that device home, they're thinking about, okay, what are we doing about our grandfathers? What are we doing about our cousins that also may need help with the internet that could be living with those students? And what is their relationship with the internet? They may need jobs. They need to apply for SNAP benefits. They may need a bus ticket or things like that. Those are things that are going to be on the internet that we have to make sure that we're not blocking those sites. And that was such a good point that Thomas brought up just now about the digital literacy piece that really needs to be promoted as intergenerational. So it's not just that the student needs to be able to access these programs outside of school time and know how to navigate some of the media that they're going to be encountering, but also how are their parents or family members or their guardians supposed to help in terms of navigating those things at home. And so that's a piece I think that was a really missed opportunity during the session was thinking about the digital divide from addressing that perspective of it, the digital literacy piece. And in that is digital citizenship. And this Thomas has mentioned it right now is kind of being able to navigate those media sources, knowing what's a credible source or not, or knowing how to have proper digital etiquette, so to speak, socializing with peers or other users online. And so I think that was definitely a missed opportunity during the legislative session was being able to establish some sort of program or some sort of course that would promote those, those pieces of digital literacy. So we're thinking, again, digital citizenship, digital ethics, etiquette, and how to appropriate appropriately navigate some of the literacy or media that students will encounter in their research or or their schooling, but also for the entertainment even. So I definitely want to uplift that point that Thomas just made about that. Well, and that's a great segue to the next question, because I want to talk a little bit about the policy work that y'all were involved in. Can you tell me about the legislation that did pass this session and how it's beneficial to digital inclusion efforts? And if there were any additional missed opportunities? I can begin with the omnibus broadband bill, HB5 by Ashby et al., which was a really success if we're thinking about addressing the digital divide in the state of Texas. Uh, HB5 established the state broadband plan, a, a state a governor's broadband development council. So it's doing some really great things to sort of address first preliminary steps of the divide here in Texas. And so um, we're really excited because I know IDRA and other digital equity and inclusion advocates really pushed very hard for there to be 
provision included in that bill that would add an urban school district representative on that broadband council which was critical to us because we know that the the digital divide doesn't just exist in rural districts or regions um, in the state of Texas, that there are communities in urban parts of the state that still have access issues, still have affordability issues and so forth. And so we were really excited to see that provision on that bill. Yeah, and I'll follow up with Christina talking about a couple other bills that we thought could have gone some places, but we were unfortunately disappointed by some of the legislators' moves to be able to not push these bills forward. A couple of those are HB 129 um, for Representative Gonzalez, which would have talked about that digital citizenship that we talked about a bit earlier to establish a course for sixth grade students to be able to take. Another one is SB 1799 that would have created a high-speed internet access grant program for school districts. So school districts could have actually applied to get grant funding so they could establish broadband networks within their communities and within their schools. That's really big fixes that we need to make sure we're prioritizing. And even others that don't necessarily talk about the digital divide explicitly, but have a portion of it. When we're talking about student engagement and making sure we're engaging with our students. HB 4391 by Representative Talawiko talked about the implementation of a student and family engagement plan. It would have been a direct system to create a better communication system between schools and their families and students. And a part of that is addressing the digital divide and part of that is building a better communication system. And a lot of that will be virtual. And so those are just a couple of missed opportunities that we thought the legislator could have did a better job. Okay, so we're almost getting ready to wrap up. And so I wanted to ask both of you guys, and we'll start with Christina. So following your fellowship, how do you see yourself continuing to advocate for digital literacy and digital inclusion? Sure. So I think at the start of my fellowship, I had always been kind of on the outskirts of advocacy work. I always knew that it was happening and I wanted to get involved and didn't really know how to stay involved or get involved in the first place. And so I think that's kind of where I will start is just trying to illuminate to some of my peers, you know, that this process, yes, it can feel opaque and it seems opaque on the outside. But if you just have one in or you have an area of concern or passion where you just want to really be involved, it's not that challenging to kind of stake your position in that. Um, And so we've seen that with some of the advocacy work we've done is just about community building and staying involved in groups who do have strong leadership in policy work. And so I think that's where I'll stay as engaging my peers, um, my close colleagues to stay engaged in this kind of work, being a part of those coalition spaces where your voice really does matter and your experiences, your lived realities, they are uplifted and they are at the center of, of policy change. So I think that's where I would like to see some of my work stay. And of course, in the research space, I'm really hoping to push forth more research on some of these residual outcomes that we've seen due to the pandemic as they relate to the digital divide and as I relate to student engagement um, and students' relationship with their learning, I would like to still stay um, very much a presence in that space um, because I feel like there are some really great opportunities to uncover some solutions to address these really long-standing issues that students have been facing and families have been facing for generations. Yeah, and I think for ways to get involved, there are a lot of ways, I think, This issue has made leaps and bounds because of COVID-19, unfortunately, but on the positive side of that, it's really great that people are starting to hear about it and really 
bring this new awareness to it. But it's a little different than a lot of other kind of like landmark things like climate or voting rights. It's very unique and it's complex and it's ever changing. And so I think we should direct people to get involved locally. We say this so many times, but like community voice and like communities matter, especially at something like this. And so whether your city has a national digital inclusion uh, alliance, like branch or affiliate, whether they have a, their own digital inclusion alliance, whether you want to start one, there's a lot of resources out there to be able to do that. And just to get regular everyday people who are working within the city, who have jobs, who are students, who are workforce development, to really care about the issue because it affects all of us. And I think by making this a very vertical leadership way is definitely the way to go to be able to hopefully one day solve the digital divide. Awesome. Thank you so much. And thank you all for your time. I really appreciate it. I appreciate all the work that you guys did behind this. Digital inclusion is something that's near and dear to my heart. And so I just want to, again, thank you for your time and thank you for joining us on this podcast. Thank you so much. Thank you for having us and thank you for your leadership. Thank you for listening to IDRA Class Notes. For more information on IDRA and other Class Notes topics, go to www.idra.org. You can also send us your thoughts by email to podcast at idra.org.